Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Standard Age Podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. This podcast has been a wonderful supplement to my apparel brand, Standard H, which serves up elevated casual automotive and travel-inspired apparel and accessories to you discerning car and watch lovers. It's been a blast recording these episodes, and if you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. Our recently revamped website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will then receive offers no one else is privy to, and I can promise it'll be well worth your while. Just hit pause real quick and hop over to standard-h.com to sign up. We'll be here waiting for you to hit play when you return. Watch collecting is often described as a journey, and along these roads of exploration, you may encounter independently owned brands you've never heard of creating some of the most incredible timepieces. If you're in search of these brands, look no further than Passion Fine Jewelry, owned by former Standard Age podcast guest Tim Jackson. Offering incredible timepieces as well as phenomenal customer service, Passion Fine Jewelry is California's largest independent watch dealer located right here in Solana Beach, just north of San Diego. There you will find Roger Smith, Gronfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, Roman Gauthier, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as a Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off their entire online shop. Now let's get to the show. Prior to the pandemic, I came across what would soon become one of my favorite YouTube channels. I was brought in by this UK-based car vlog and its host, Sam, mainly due to his energy, enthusiasm, and really what felt like uninhibited honesty. Seen Through Glass gained my subscription very quickly when Sam launched his adventure called Drive the World, literally a trek around the world where he drives a Porsche 911T while documenting every step of the way. It was incredible. To say this conversation is heavy on the car talk would be a drastic understatement. And as I often say about many of these episodes, it could have gone on for much longer had we not had a time constraint. It was a ton of fun to hear all about Sam's process, how he films, and what he finds to be the best way to produce content. He even opens up about something never really talked about that was lurking behind the scenes when filming Drive the World. Sam's automotive influence came from an arguably unexpected source, and another fun insight arrived when we began discussing watches and what role they've played throughout his life. Turns out his father is somewhat famous in his own right within the world of horology, so stay tuned for that. When Sam posted a video asking for support for his trip to Mila Miglia, I couldn't email him fast enough. After following Sam and his automotive journey for several years at this point, Partnering with him has been somewhat of a long-term goal of mine for Standard H. 
Well, he happened to see my outreach, and after a couple of Zoom calls and a couple of headaches provided by our friends at UPS, we got some products sorted and in Sam's hands for his trip to Italy. His first of two videos documenting his trip just released this past Sunday, so be sure to give that a watch, and stay tuned for the second one due out this Sunday. But for now, I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Listen, Sam, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, we can just get right into it. When somebody asks you what you do for a living, what do you tell them? I, I'm now more comfortable with saying I'm a YouTuber than ever before. I think, okay. you know, firstly, it's a more acceptable term or a more acceptable career. You know, forever I would either lie or comes to the realization I would have to spend another 15 minutes explaining what that meant, you know, like, so um, it's really only been the last, I would say the last 12 months that if someone asked, genuinely the last 12 months that if someone asked, I just come out and say, I'm a YouTuber. No like, even right now I'm looking for a new studio. And when the people, when the state agents and stuff are showing me around, they say, oh, what, what do you do? What's the, what does the business do? I say, oh, I'm a YouTuber. I would never have said that before. I, I oh, uh, content production, or you know, I work with brands. Or, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. But yes, right. there we go. Long story short, I'm a YouTuber. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Well, that's cool. Um, like, how many videos have you done now? Oh, I mean, that's a question I can't answer easily. But let's find out because YouTube, like any online <laughs> platform, is fantastic at telling me. Um, uh, I think it must be over a thousand. Oh, sorry, that's my. Uh, intro starting on the main channel i think it's got to be over a thousand about right that's a nice round number though. 135 million views that's a joke i hadn't seen that for a while wow. um youtube i should know how to bring up this stat much quicker than i'm doing right now which is embarrassing <laughs> no that's okay that's okay i could have also done my own research here <laughs> <laughs> we're both showing each other up aren't we but look let's go with a thousand videos because it's got to be there or thereabouts sure sure um it's a lot and then that, that isn't even including my my podcast channel and, and things like that but mm. yeah it's a lot at what point did you feel like okay this has taken off um end of year one you know i i started creating content online as a hobby as a distraction from everyday life from a slightly unsuccessful um uh, consultancy which i'd set up and that was all it was ever supposed to be and at the end of year one i was creeping up on a hundred thousand subscribers wow i hadn't made i hadn't really made any money yet because youtube you know it's it's a complicated beast and at that point i hadn't really made any money but i, I knew you could make money i'd seen into into the the hole uh, that is YouTube. And I thought this looks like fun. So yeah, that was the moment I went, wow, we've got something here. Let's, let's go with it. Wow. Okay. That's really, really interesting. So you had a consultancy before. Yeah. So uh, just before I, I started YouTube, I, I'd been working in PR in, in public relations for about five years, five or six years, maybe, um, mainly around like film, television, entertainment events. Mm. So, so whenever there was a big global entertainment event, uh, I was there to sort of handle the press or the, or the media access or the media coverage of that event. And I loved it. I'll be honest, dude, I absolutely loved that job. And I left a huge agency, one of the biggest agencies in, in the UK, to go and set up my own specialist consultancy that would just do film premieres. 
because because mm. that was like my specialism and that's where i thought i did really good and i was like i'm just going to go and nail film premieres and on the side maybe i can get a couple of like f1 related gigs you know when a team is launching a new car or maybe when a sponsor wants to do something it's a similar vibe like mm-hmm. I can do this. and uh, long story short a year in i'd done like i've done two or three good things but i was not busy <laughs> you know right. like i was not i was not busy i'd had like two or three good clients but i was like this is boring and I'd gone back to my dad and said, like, I think I want to go and get a nine to five because this kind of self-employed, it's too, I'm too stressed, I'm too anxious. And he was the one who said, look, no, go find a hobby, distract yourself. Uh, and that hobby was making videos. And, and I was passionate about cars and motorsports. So I thought, heck, let's make videos about cars and motorsport. Yeah, that's amazing. Speaking of being busy, like I often describe my calendar as looking like a minefield. Yeah. Like I can, I can, only, <laughs> I can only imagine that yours is as bad, if not far worse. Um, Dude, I I think anyone either working for themselves, actually, I'm not even if you're working for the man, you know, even if you're in a big corporate, we're all busy people, huh? We're all busy people. I think the only thing I would say about YouTubers or online content creators is people underestimate how Mm. busy we tend to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And the fact that the internet never sleeps. You know, the internet is always on, in inverted commas, mm-hmm. means that we always have to be on. Um, it's a very demanding job, but I think nine times out of 10, those doing it are super passionate. So just like with, with everything you're doing with Standard H and, and all of that stuff, if you're passionate about what's going on- It's not work. It's not a job, it's, you yeah. know, that's your life. That's just, that's just the every breathing minute, that's what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. And that's exactly how I feel. Um, but like, what's a typical day like for you? Um, like, is there any structure? Like, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's some structure, but oh, is it? Okay. Every day is fairly different. The only thing I can tell you is that on a Monday, I record a podcast. <laughs> and the only reason I've got structure to that is I have a co-host who runs a car, a used car dealership here in the UK. And that's the only day he can do regularly. So, so we just know that every Monday at lunchtime, we're doing a podcast. That's the only regularity I have in my life. It's the only structure I have in my life. I, I crave structure, bro. Like I crave it. Like I haven't been to the gym in like 17 years and I'll blame YouTube for that. <laughs> Dude, no, but you're, you're fit. Like what are you doing to stay thin? I'm not, I'm, I might be thin. That's something to do with my genetics. I don't quite understand it. Um, I think I'm dead inside. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, my arteries are really crying for help, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, okay. So like, I'm going to say all of us because I think it is a toxicity. I wake up, I look at my phone, right? That's that. Yeah. I, I literally, the minute my eyes open, I'm straight to my phone. And that's usually anxiety induced in terms of, uh, yeah, international emails that would have come in overnight, but then also what would have happened on socials. Because sometimes I'll be posting right up before I go to bed on stories, on Twitter, uh, a video may have gone live. So my first thing is like, how did the video perform overnight? Uh, you know, what, what comments or interactions might I got on that Instagram post? How have my stories done? So that's the immediate anxiety. Um, these days i'm filming less than than i was i i'm on a one or two videos a week schedule at one point in my life i was on five four five videos a week um so for each video i'm probably filming one and a half days and then that's probably another half day of editing so it's probably two days of my week are dedicated to making a video wow um so are you still editing yourself yeah one man band (laughs) (laughs) one man band (laughs) which is the oh you're giving me a high five there thank you so much i appreciate that well it's the bit i enjoy well that's okay this is really interesting because yeah i'm more of like a process person i like how 
I like to see how the sausage is made kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Um, I think everybody loves a manufacturing tour. I mean, you fall in love with products so much easier that way when you like can really see how that sausage is made, you know? Um, that's really interesting because I wanted to ask if you've hired, you know, an editor. I, I My biggest downfall as a businessman is not hiring people. You know, you speak to any successful entrepreneur or, or, or business person. Delegating. Yeah, delegate. You know, you gotta, you got to hire people to grow and my struggle with that is twofold. Firstly, I'm a control freak. <laughs> so especially with the creative process. Absolutely. And secondly, because I started this as a hobby, shifting into a business mentality has been the biggest barrier for me. Like that's the, the hardest thing I've, I've really struggled with looking at YouTube as a business. And there are many channels out there globally who've done a far better job or who start channels as businesses. But I'm still like, ha, lol like as if this is my job so so then when you know the moments i should have hired someone or i should have had help uh i was just like i'm good like i know how to make a video i know how to edit um and it's ridiculous you know i'm six or seven years in now uh it's a healthy business it's a good business but it's it's held back by my lack of delegation i have a commercial agent i have to say that i have a commercial agent they're fantastic uh an amazing girl called lucy i shouldn't call her a girl she's a woman um but uh she's a what does Lucy do for you? Like, what does that mean? She solely looks after any uh, partnerships, commercial partnerships for Seen Through Glass or myself uh, as an entity. So let's say Shell. Shell are a company that I've worked with for four or five years now. So mm-hmm. that is a, a marketing collaboration. So there's a lot of confusion when it comes to online content creators between PR and marketing and you hear bad stories on both sides, but, but that's pure marketing. So they'll come to Lucy or Lucy will go out and reach out to a brand and say, look, we want to work with Sam or Sam wants to work with you. Uh, are there any projects coming up? And she'll say, yeah, you know what? Actually, we want to talk this year about how the V power you're putting in your road car is pretty much exactly the same as what the formula one drivers are putting in their F1 car. Sure. How can we tell a story around that? And then there's a commercial agreement there. So I'll, I'll get I'll get some money. There'll be a there'll be a fee attributed to that. They'll then hopefully get the exposure or the content that that I'm creating. Um, it's you know traditional advertising in a sense or media advertising. So she, that's her whole her whole gig. So that helps a lot um, because yeah, I wouldn't have time to do the not only the proactive outreach that she does. But right. also the co- the contracts and the negotiation. Like I'm just like I'm happy to do everything. <laughs> you know, right. yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm a re- as I say, I'm a bad businessman. So company reaches out. I'm like, yeah, sounds great. And she's like, do you need to get paid? Right, oh. right, right. So, well, if you get paid, she gets paid, right? I mean, I'm well, sure there's another incentive for it. So, yeah. <laughs> takes a cut. But um, so how has your approach to filming changed over the years? Like, say, you know, year one, even though you you gained some success as you mentioned, and you're in year six, seven now. Yeah, um, I definitely care more. I've always cared about this, the sort of cinematography element, the production element, Mm -hmm. you know, without, I've got to a point now where I'm comfortable enough to blow my own horn on occasion. As a British guy, that's not a very comfortable place to be, but I was one of the first in our space to bring music into, into videos, you know, uh, prior to, 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 to my videos, you know, car, supercar, YouTube vlogs were very raw, you know, very raw. And that's still a style that a lot of YouTubers use. But I always wanted to have a bit more of a cinematic feel. So bringing in a bit of music, editing, cuts, different styles. 
and dude, that's just grown. It's grown with experience. It's grown with confidence. It's grown with uh, ability. All these different things. So, so now it's uh, I overshoot. You know, I'm trying to Martin Scorsese every single car review, um, yeah. which is so unnecessary uh, for YouTube, especially. It's a platform that you know it's it's personality based rather than uh, production value based. <clears throat> so you could get away with filming a whole YouTube channel on an iPhone, but but I like to go over and above just because that's that's where I get inspired, I suppose. Sure. So yeah, it's a lot of a lot of uh, scenery, a lot of what we call B-roll in the industry. So you know, a piece to camera is A-roll, B-roll are all the shots of the buildings around you and the pr pretty cars and all that kind of stuff. So I'll do a lot of that because also <laughs> I tend to talk a lot of crap and it means I can cut that out and put nice pretty shots or something else over it and no one notices that I've spliced it up so much. <laughs> well, so, all right, just really quick, like run down kind of your, your gear like, are you primarily GoPros right now? Are you doing, what, what are you filming with primarily? So the, the simplest way to sum it up is anything in car is GoPro. So that's yeah. a suction mount GoPro. It just means that I can focus on what I'm doing and not have to worry about the camera. Anything out of car, I'm a Panasonic addict. And, and you know, that's not, you don't hear that a lot from videographers. Right. People tend to prefer other brands, but I'm obsessed with the, with the Lumix products. Um, I run a, something called a GH5 forever. Um, oh, yeah. I just got the GH6. Uh, I ran an S5 uh, last year. Still got that, but yeah. You, and I'll tell you why: stabilization, dude. Like, it's, oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. So if I'm riding in the passenger seat of a car and I want to get some shots, the thing I can like hold the thing, like not even look. The car's going everywhere, and it comes yeah. out butter smooth. So that's amazing. Uh, there's a big, big car channel uh, based in the US called the Smoking Tire. Of course. Yep. Very famous automotive journalist. And really early on in my career, he said, make it as simple and easy as possible. The, right. the more you're filming, the more complicated it is, the less money you're making or the more money you're losing. Right. And within reason, I try to take that advice. Um, you know, he would look at what I do now and laugh and say, I'm an idiot. But, but within reason, you know, I'm trying to make my kit and my gear as simple as possible. Sure. The, G the, the Lumix cameras, I can pick them up. I don't even have to think about what I'm doing. They're rock solid. The GoPro, same thing. I chuck it in the car, I hit record. I haven't got to be worrying like what the exposure's like and the focus and all that stuff like that. It's just get up and go. Now, is Lucy involved in either of those two companies in acquiring those types of products? Uh, no, so weirdly, GoPro, I, I have really hit my head against. Um, there were some, re some brands out there that you would think, surely like that's an easy go-to nope <laughs> right i would love to understand what gopros like approaches because i know people who get literally sent 15 gopros a year for like fun and i'm like hey and they just will not even acknowledge it they're like cool here a link to our shop <laughs> unreal um the only people who've ever been half good with dji yeah but this was a few years ago now like, and dji sent me some stuff and then I guess I didn't post enough about it because I didn't really, I, and they were like, oh, we're good. So. Oh, cause, cause you're, cause you're not actually reviewing the drone. Right? Well, yeah, like, it, well, that's exactly it. I'm not doing a whole video talking about a drone. Like that's not my channel. And, and that is a commercial agreement at that point. Yeah. So this is where it gets really complicated as an online content creator, what brands expect, what creators expect, where the money should be involved. But you know, the, the giving of goods, uh, with an, expectation of exposure is a real tricky gray area yeah and i think dji as fantastic and supportive as they were clearly had an expectation that they hadn't necessarily outlined to me 
And, and so I just thought, great, drone, off I go. And I definitely talked about it, but obviously not enough. So haven't heard from them for a while. <laughs> so yeah, uh, bless Lucy. I, I ruin her life because there's a few things I chase her on and GoPro is one of them. And the other is a blue tick on Instagram. And she, uh, I remind her monthly that she's failing miserably at both, but, but, but she's incredible at so many other things that I, can't, I really can't give her a, a hard time. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so I know what a blue check is, obviously. It's like Twitter and Instagram, and it's called verified. But like, what exactly, what's the function behind it? So it's lost a lot of its appeal or purpose, right? So my primary reason back in the day is on Twitter. It was always more powerful on Twitter than Instagram. On Twitter, you got like a separate verified direct message section where you could message other verified people and they would always get the message. It was like a direct in to other verified people. And I was like, Kylie Jenner, I'm coming for you. Like, this is what it's at. I mean, this is back in 2015, by the way, before I met my wife. Right. Um, and, uh, and I was like, I'm coming for you. This is, this is what it's all about. Uh, didn't really happen for me uh, in, in getting verified on Twitter or meeting, well, or sliding into Kylie Jenner's DMs. <laughs> I say, I then met my wife and couldn't care less about Kylie Jenner. Um, on Instagram, you know what it is? It's more uh, a sort of a reflection, I think, or um, not a rubber stamp. I'm trying to think of the word, a, a, a validation of what you do online. Mm. Because if somebody has a blue tick and they like a photo, or if they comment on something, if they send you a message, you immediately notice that. So as a creator, it's a very easy way to network. If mm. I want to engage with a brand, if I want to engage with a, a, an event or a venue or another creator, it's much easier to do that because you have a blue tick because it, it pops up, it's far more uh, in their face and you're more likely to get uh, a response. Whereas if you don't have that, you just get lost in the endless DMs, comments and messages that, that they get. So, you know, I, I can't remember, my Instagram, I have no idea, it's 300,000 something. I, I, I lose track and I don't really keep track. It's unreal. It's, it's a stupid amount of people, right? Like it's a stupid amount of people. It's a city. If I send a direct message to GoPro, it gets buried as well as John from Kentucky, who's got five followers. It's rated the same. So mm. that, that's where I'm like, I would like a blue tick so I could be a bit more effective in my job. Um, but then also it's like, why don't I? Like, it sounds like the really most like egotistical thing in the world, but like, I know people who have done far less online and somehow have a blue tick. So yeah. it's just a per personal vendetta I have against these and platforms. And not that this needs to become a blue tick conversation, but I've also <laughs> heard other people- Give me like, a blue tick. I know, like I don't have one, right? Like So um, so it's one of those things, like I've heard some people say, like, I don't want it. Oh, oh, that's interesting. And I, I don't know, I've never been able to ask those. I've heard people say it, but if not like in front of me to where I could, you know, ask like, why not? Or- What's what's the negative of having it? You know what I mean? I guess it puts you too much in, in, in people's faces, I suppose. You can't be as incognito as I am. I can sneak around and I can comment or engage or whatever. But if you are verified, it suddenly makes you a person of note. And people mm. are like, oh, you're verified. Like, right. uh, that's what it is. It's, it's complete social media. Uh, I'm going to, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, bull crap. I don't even know if that's a swear word. No, no, you can. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Um, you know, it is, it's, it's all about us 
Uh, it's the toxic side of social media where we're endlessly chasing these unrealistic goals. And look, look at me, you know, I do this as a living and here I am desperate for a blue tick. For what? For what purpose? There's no real purpose, um, right. but I want it real bad. And, and I think that's all it is. It just hovers, hovers above some of us. Sure. But yeah, so, so, you know, as I say, Lucy's is spectacular, but there are these weird things within my space as a car creator that you would think would be very natural partnerships that have forever evaded us. And um, just, you know, just some brands just look at you and go, no, you're not, you're not relevant to us. You're not within our space. We don't need to activate within that market, whatever it might be. Right, right. Your videos are typically like 15 to 25 minutes, I would say on average. Is that like an algorithmic based decision or is like, what, what's the philosophy behind the length? Yeah. So, so this will get a little nerdy. Um, that's, that's what these things are all about. <laughs> great. Okay. Well, let's nerd out. So, um, you know, when I was back in the PR days and, and online content sort of started to really take over 90 seconds was your limit. You know, when I worked with brands, it was like, if you're going over a minute, you're already in trouble. 90 seconds is all you want to do. Then these vloggers started popping up and videos were like six or seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was like, okay, this is interesting. And then I'm guessing like 2015, 2016, YouTube did a major algorithm change. And if you uploaded a video that was over 10 minutes, you could do double ads. So you could insert an ad into the middle of your video. And now we have KC Neistat. <laughs> oh my God. Everyone was like, cash, cash money. And yeah. you noticed every single YouTuber was like 10 minutes, one second. Um, so everyone pushed towards this 10 minute number. That was so uh, prolific that everyone figured it out. Like even the audience were like, oh, classic 10 minute video. Um, now since then, and constantly the algorithm on YouTube becomes more and more complex, develops and grows to the point where very few people even understand it. You speak to Mr. Beast, even he's like, I'm still learning the algorithm. You know, he's got, he's got the best handle on it out of everyone in the world, but, but he's still figuring it out. So, um, so, and that's, he's the biggest YouTube channel in the world. Um, just for those that, that aren't too familiar with it. Um, it's incredible. The big push now is to long form content. And I, I've been trying to understand where this comes from because it's not just a monetary point of view. It's actually the audience are also demanding it. And that's mm. because the more channels that start to do long form, if you then watch a channel with sh- short form and in inverted commas. So if most people, if you're, if you're watching a lot of 20, 25 minute videos and then you watch a 10 minute video, it seems really short. So you're going to ask that creator, oh, I want more long form content. So the more people that do long form, the, the more we all do long form. Um, and I genuinely think that's out of the back of the, of, of COVID and the lockdown. People spending more time at home in front of their TVs or their computers, whether it's watching series on Netflix, whatever it might be, or browsing YouTube, they want to be entertained for longer. Mm-hmm. You know, before people would watch YouTube on the on their commute, on public transport, quickly, like when they were making dinner or something like that. So seven to ten minutes was kind of perfect. You could just bash through it real quick. Well, now people are using YouTube like it's TV, television, yeah. Watch t- watch YouTube, and therefore you're sort of getting towards traditional programming length, which is, yeah, 20, 25 minutes for, for what would then be a 30 minute slot on TV. So it's kind of fascinating to see that. I actually struggle <laughs> making longer videos. I find harder than making shorter videos, like, because you can pack a load of content into mm-hmm. six minutes. Like I could feel like that's a, that's a hot video. If you film all day, six minutes is a hot video. Mm-hmm. Dragging something out for 25 minutes, Oh, you got to talk a lot of crap or you got to film a lot of crap. Right. You have got to fill your bucket list because I'm all about 
entertainment, right? Engagement level entertainment. I want the video to have a story. I want you to be constantly engaged. I want you to be following what's going on and there to be a narrative. So I just don't want to sit down and talk for 25 minutes to a camera because I'm already bored like three minutes into that talking. Um, so how you keep that narrative and that engagement level going for 25 minutes, I find very, very difficult. So it's so a new challenge for me. We, we I, I worked with a buddy of mine on a video uh, that ended up being, I think it was seven minutes on the nose. Nice. We had a hundred minutes of footage and we cut it to seven. There you go. Now, could it have been longer? Absolutely. But the question I, I'm getting to is, is, so how much footage do you typically have for, say, a 20-minute video? I'll go back to the, the Matt Farah advice. Uh, I've, you become, one, one becomes a machine at shooting yeah. what is required. Super efficient. Yeah, my sole focus is on the chat. So I will overfilm B-roll, going back to A-roll and B-roll. I will overfilm B-roll. So, you know, if, if I'm out, let's say just reviewing a car, I will get all the shots, static shots, you know, flybys, GoPro shots on the side of the car so you get all those dynamic angles. But all that's going on in my head is, have I got a minimum of 10 to 12 minutes of chat? Because, you know, I'll, I'll typically do a couple of minutes of music sort of scenery shots, but I have to have got 10 to 12 minutes of interesting chat as a minimum to mm -hmm. know I've got a video. So that's always my stress and my focus. And, you know, if you were to spend a day with me filming and lots of people are always surprised, you know, I get invited to cool places and they'll watch me film. And that's my biggest stress. It's like, okay, but I haven't got a video yet. You, I might've been filming for four hours, but I don't have a video yet. Cause there's, we haven't, nothing's happened. I haven't talked about anything. So I, right. I've got to find that chat. Cause otherwise you end up with two minutes of chat, 20 minutes of B-roll. Like that's not a video. That's just like, <laughs> and right. it's boring. It's a screensaver. So yeah, yeah <laughs> that that's, it, so I've become better at like, right, what are I, what's my narrative? What are the bits I've got to get? What's the chat I've got to get? And then, okay, on top of that, I'll just overfilm everything else and somehow it will work out. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Are you self-taught as far as editing and, and videography goes? Yeah. That's great. What program are you using to edit? Final Cut. Okay. Standard, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to move to to Adobe. It scared me too much to take the time out and learn it. Right, right. Uh, Final Cut's where it's at. Are there any like editing hacks aside from just being super efficient that you could share? Uh, one thing which I think when people are starting out, they miss is a very obvious and effective thing is if you're going to bring in music, edit to the beat of the music. Oh, it will sure. Transform your video. It yeah. seems like a really obvious thing to say, but a lot of the time people will especially if they're doing car videos, right? You stick a GoPro on a car and you drive up a, a canyon road, like, oh, great. And then you think, oh, I'll put some music to it. If, you, if the cuts don't work, it somehow jars as a video. But if, you're, if you've got a music track which is going and you cut and you slice at every beat or every other beat with that GoPro footage, suddenly you're like, oh, this video is awesome. So yeah, that's like a weird, obvious hack. Um, and then, as I say, I think aside from that, the biggest advice I have for anyone starting out is audio. If you're going to do any kind of content, audio is king. Because right. I say, we've all got the best camera in the world. It's in our pocket. It's called a phone. Every phone in the world now is the best video camera you need. You don't need anything else apart from that. But the audio is crap on a, on a phone. Right. So you've either got to get an, a, 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 what's called accessory, a microphone accessory, or you then got to get a camera that you can plug a microphone into. Because 
none of us want to watch a video which is like like no one's enjoying that but if it's a bit of a grainy picture or the lighting's off or the exposure's off or whatever but it's crystal clear audio we we can all watch it we can all we can all tolerate it absolutely sure yeah yeah no i'd say that's sound advice for sure and i mean that was kind of my approach with the podcast too like i wanted to focus on good audio and and luckily I've got you who also has a podcast. So you've got your own whatever condenser mic or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. Um, I mean, I think it's very obvious that we need to talk about drive the world. Um, okay. for those who haven't seen your channel, which I think if you're listening to this podcast, most of the people listening, I'm sure have at least heard of you, if not have watched your videos. Um, can you just give a quick overview of like, you know, how that origin story was in creating that a massive project. Yeah. So, so 20, uh, actually it starts in 2017, if I've got to be honest. So, so 2017, I'd been doing YouTube for a couple of years. And, uh, by this point, uh, there was quite a few other people doing what I was doing, supercar vlogging. It was getting a busier and busier space. And I'd done two series. I'd done a travel series to LA where I based myself in LA for three and a half months. And I'd done a travel series in Italy where I'd been around Italy for a month and a half. And they were by far the most successful things I'd done on the channel. The people were still talking about the content, you know, months or years later. And I was like, okay, so I've done this thing. What's, what's project number three? Like, how do I follow this up? And I was with a friend at Monterey Car Week and we were driving down PCH in this amazing car. And we were kind of just, openly talking said how amazing would it be to go around the world to all the best car events and just spend a year like just driving cool cars at cool car events something went off in my head i was like that's it like that's the that's the next big thing i've got to somehow like make this a global thing went home my girlfriend who's now my wife i was like babe like we're gonna do this like world car event trip she's like i just got promoted i can't leave my job i was like Okay, cool. Shelf that. <laughs> so that got shelved for like a year. Uh, going to 2018, I was very like disillusioned with YouTube. I was a bit fed up. I'd done the same format for three or four years by that point. You know, the, the whole space was getting a bit oversaturated. I was just a bit like, I got to do something different now. So I went back and revisited this whole like world car event trip thing. And the more and more I looked into it, the more and more research, and I thought, you know what, the only way to do this, or what, what this actually is, is a trip around the world. Like, like that, that's what this needs to be. I stumbled across a weird stat that was my channel was watched in 132 different countries in 2018. And I was like, what the hell is a scene through glass viewer in Vietnam? Like, like, like who is the scene through glass viewer in South Africa? Like, who are these people? And, and so that's where really the origin story was. It was like drive around the world and meet as many seen through glass views as I can to understand what it means to be a petrol head or a YouTube viewer or a car person in all these different countries. Um, and look, you know, it, it ended up being truncated. We, did we go as far as we wanted to go? No. Did we go as extreme as we wanted to go? No, but we ended up doing 35 countries in the year. 34,000 miles in one car, which did Australia, Europe, North America, um, met incredible people, made a whole ton of content. I don't know how many videos we made across the year, but it was probably four a week, three or four weeks. So I was going to say, I really appreciated kind of the summary videos even after the fact, which may have been COVID related or just to create content, but it was, it was cool to see sort of behind the scenes and stuff, especially, you know, with Vicky being in them. 
Yeah, so so a story that not a lot of people know because I've never had a chance to really talk about it is that we we had green lit a documentary uh, to to do on Drive the World. So not that I didn't have enough on my plate. Uh, the big takeaway was we were going to do a documentary series, which we were selling into a, a channel here in the UK, um, which was going to be a, a four or a six parter and look at each kind of continent and be just that, be a Kardashian style, like piece, like studio pieces talking about what happened with kind of footage, like, uh, uh, and this was the whole thing. And it didn't end up happening. And thank God, because I, I mean, I had enough of a mental breakdown just trying to do the YouTube channel, doing really? a documentary as well, it would have killed me. Um, but when lockdown came around, we had all this footage, I couldn't really film anything else. And we were sitting there and I thought, heck, let's just make that, let's make a version of that documentary. Like there's still so much meat on the bones here. So much people didn't know about, so much we filmed that we couldn't talk about at the time. And, you know, my wife, Vicky, she's never appeared on the channel, has no intention to, I, I don't want her to, but it was the perfect timing to do it uh, in lockdown and the perfect excuse for her to do it. And yeah, I'm glad you appreciated it. We loved doing it. It was so much, it was a very cathartic experience doing it, I have to say. Yeah. And it's just special too, you know, I mean, it obviously speaks to your partnership, but I don't know, there was just so much more of even more of a human element to it. I just thought it was really fantastic. Um, Which was the hard part to figure out, right? You know, I think if lessons learned or, you know, would I change anything? I went into that year looking at YouTube and looking at my business in a completely different way to how I would do now. So, you know, as I say, I was coming off the back of frustration within the automotive space. Mm. I don't think I really knew my channel audience as well as I do now. And the whole thing at that time was daily vlogs, right? All you need to do to succeed on YouTube is daily vlogs. The more content you can upload, the better. Shmi was taking off with daily videos. Like this was the whole pressure. And it was all like cars, 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 cars. I'd done a bit of lifestyle stuff, but not really. Like it was all cars, cars, cars. So I went into that year thinking, right, I want to try and make a video every day. I want to overload people with content and everything's got to be fundamentally like about a car. Every video needs to feature a car when actually long story short, what I should have done or, or what people I think really wanted to see was a more raw human experience of what it's like to travel the world in a year. You know, as I say, le lessons learned, I would have done it differently. Um, but, but, you know, at the time that's all I, I knew I wanted to make, you know, car content. I was trying to, trying to grow the channel and trying to to give people what they wanted but i think yeah n now in hindsight and if i was to ever do to do it again um i would have would have told a more, a more personal story for sure you know it's interesting i mean i think there's some parallels there with with standard age i've um i call it chasing demand and i've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast where like when I first launched the company, I had, you know, my logo. And even though it's like a fun, cool, subtle kind of soliciting a double take sort of logo. Um, and, and though I still love it and wear these hats daily, um, I thought people wanted logos and I've never been a logo guy. I mean, this is, you know, the long sleeve Avant tee and like, this is me, you know, and then taking it a step further, it's, this is my design, my fabric, my, you know, everything is, is all me. And I think that kind of speaks to what you're saying is if Sam does what Sam wants to do, people will gravitate to that because we want to see Sam be Sam and not just try to predict or mind read what we think we want because we don't know. You know what I mean? Like we follow you because of your voice and your sort of attention to detail from that perspective. And, and that's, that was a huge learning curve for me uh, because I didn't have the confidence, quite frankly, to like, why do people want my stuff? And then I'm like, but I want my stuff. So I just kind of 
boarded that ship of worst case scenario, I've got at least one customer. <laughs> Which is I mean? always good. No, yeah, no, yeah. but you're so right. And I think, you know, that's why there's a great, great synergy between, I think, what we're, what we're doing and why I'm so happy that we're, we're working together on this, on this big project about to, to kick off. And mm. it's because there's, yeah, there's, you're exactly right. You know, that I, I was focused on what I thought people wanted and what I thought the YouTube algorithm wanted. Whereas now I'm so much more confident in, in what I'm doing because I just relaxed into it and, and, and COVID helped force me to just make the content I wanted to make and, and not care so much. And, and so did the trip to be fair, like six months into the trip, I was like, right, screw it. Like we're on a trip of a lifetime. I'm just going to make the content I want to make, go to the place I want to go. And, and then it performed a lot better. So yeah. I think it's great advice for for people around the world, you, know, you have the confidence to just do your own thing, and uh, and you're far better, you're far more likely to succeed than trying to chase what you think everyone else wants. What's the expression? Be yourself. Everybody else is taken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's nice. I like that. Put that on um, a t-shirt, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the um, so there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you. What uh, as far as your trip was? Cause was there any part of the U.S. that you preferred or like enjoyed the most, or or maybe surprised you most? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna upset some of your followers or listeners now. I really only like, uh, let's think the most Eastern point, like Colorado West, <laughs> like anything Eastern Colorado. I'm not that fast. I got really, <laughs> oh, interesting. Was that weather related? I just think as a European, as a Brit, my obsession with America, my love of America, which is still true, is based out of film, right? Well, of course. That's yeah. my whole, I'm there and I'm like, I'm in a movie. And for me, sort of West and Midwest is, is that, you know, wherever mm -hmm. I'm going, I see Americana at its greatest. And, you know, the sun is setting and there's cute little taverns and there's the diners and like everything is just movie where you get to sort of Kansas and parts of Texas. And I even forget like where else I went. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, this is flat and ugly. <laughs> like, you know, and I'm now in like making a murderer territory. Yeah. And like, I'm pretty sure every truck stop, I'm going to get raped. And like, you know, I just was suddenly like, I'm now on the dark side of Americana. And, uh, and also, you know, when you've done a trip that's a year long and you're two months into the American trip, like everything didn't go well towards us, like wanting to have a good time in as I say, like, let me actually think of places I went, like Georgia and and in and around Chicago and Detroit. And, you know, like, these are cool places, I'm sure, if I flew in, flew out. Right. But at this point, I was like, I just want to go home. I'm right. like, I don't want to get stabbed before I get there. I don't want to get shot. Like, the car can't get carjacked. And it felt like it was going to happen. So, so um, yeah, I, I really am obsessed with, like, Oregon, Washington, California. I was just up in Vancouver last week. Right. And obviously that's Canada, but you know, that whole part of, of North America, I'm obsessed with Wyoming, uh, Utah, uh, all of that I adore. I struggle with some more Eastern and Southern places. It's so funny just because of the synergies again, I grew up in North Carolina, but I was always obsessed with Colorado and California. I debated for years moving, you know, to Boulder, Denver, Colorado versus Los Angeles. And finally, I was like, well, I can surf and play golf year round if, if I move to California, right? So that's, that's how that happened, basically. 
And I still, to this day, like have this weird feeling when I see the Hollywood sign in the hills. Like it's crazy. Like it's like, it's, that's not real. Implanted in yeah. us. It's implanted yeah. in us. You can't help it. And it's a big part of my, if, you know, those who don't know my channel, I have, I have an obsession with Monaco, with Monte Carlo. Uh, same. And that's because, you know, I grew up watching Formula One. So I see it on the TV every year. And then also you sort of, it's within some kind of popular culture. You know, it, it does feature in films, whether they're talking about it or not. The scenery, the imagery, you feel familiar. You arrive and you feel like you know it. Yeah. And so whilst it's a weird ass place and it's not somewhere that everyone's going to like, I just immediately, I'm like, I'm home. Yeah, I love it. It's the same thing as Hollywood. You see that sign, you're like, this is badass. Like, yeah. even if it's got, you know, it's down parts. But um, yeah, no, I, I'm a fan. One, especially with Monaco, because you like walk through those streets and you see how narrow they are. And you're like, wait, that car does 130 miles an hour in this part. Like, you're just like, what? I can't compute it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I simply cannot fathom that speed. Because even in my younger days, when I would drive a little bit too quickly through the center of Monaco, I'm talking like 35 miles an hour. Like, right. like I, I cannot even, I can't imagine it. I simply cannot imagine the speeds that they go. And I've been lucky enough to attend a few Grand Prix and, and watch it and visually see it. And even then you don't quite understand it. It's yeah. just like, they're just these things. That's, that's when you're just like, uh, all praise Adrian Newey and all the Arrow guys and, you know, and Bravo Pirelli, you know, it's just kind of like, but the footage from this year, you know, all of the drivers literally touching the barriers on parts of the swimming pool. An inch. Yeah. Literally. And I'm like, this is next level, like non-human ability. So yeah. Uh, yeah. When you're there just walking around, it's like, wow, what, what a magical place. And it, somehow it's, you can still sort of hear and smell the F1 cars, even if you're there in October. Right, right, right. Yeah, dude. It's just absolutely surgical at this point. But um well, you know, going back to your channel a bit, like YouTube is such a saturated market, right? Like in your eyes, what would you attribute your channel's growth to? And actually, I want to back up and ask what your subs was like prior to Drive the World and how many subs was it after? Like what kind of growth? Because that, that had to have been a magnificent charge. That's what you would think. Well, that's what I thought. <laughs> no way. So I actually attribute a stagnation in my subscriber growth at Drive the World. So year on year, every year up until Drive the World, I'd gained 100,000 subscribers a year. Bang on. Year on year, 100,000, 100,000, 100,000. Drive the World was the first year that I didn't. And I actually think I only gained maybe like, I don't want to say 40. It must have been like 60,000 across the year. 40 seems aggressive. I think I must have gained 60,000 across the year. Um, but, you know, but since then, subscriber growth on, on my channel, but within the UK automotive scene has really slowed. So I think it's a really fascinating thing to look at and to try to understand. You know, when I started, there was a guy called Shmi 150. Right. There was a guy called Supercars of London. Doug DeMuro was kind of existent. If you're into your cars, you know who Doug DeMuro is. Yeah. <laughs> San Diego guy. Yeah, Saab Kyle. Like there was like a there was like a handful. I think five, maximum ten, globally, globally, filming cars on YouTube. And Shmi, when I started, had like four hundred, five hundred thousand subscribers, I think. Um, and literally, I began and shit kicked off. Like, like you know, literally, 
I'm not saying because of me, but I got in right at the right time. Yeah. And and since then, there are a hundred car YouTubers in every channel around the world. Right. As there are a hundred or a million makeup vloggers and watch vloggers and travel vloggers, like <laughs> t-shirt companies. <laughs> t-shirt company, like the platform blew up and everyone was like, heck, this YouTube looks fun. So it's been incredible but because of that, as an audience member, you're oversaturated. And, and and especially within the supercar YouTuber space, you know, I already mentioned that was the motivation for Drive the World. When anything like that is is new or blowing up, people copy the same mold, right? But, you know, there's not a lot of uh, invention or creativity to do something different because you see something, you go, oh, I could do that. And you just start doing the same thing. And I'm sure lots of people would say, oh, well, when you started, you were just like Shmi. I don't think I was, but I was copying motorbike vloggers. You could definitely say that. Uh, I was copying a lot of the motorbike vloggers in their format. So if they'd seen what I'm doing, they might've been pissed off. But, um, you know, that imitation, bigger form flattery or whatever you would say. So sure. for a good couple of years, there were 20 channels in the UK, and this was peak drive the world that were doing exactly the same thing. And I think when I stepped out of that, firstly, the algorithm took my content away from that audience space because a nerdy insight is if you're in Canada and you upload a video, that gets pushed to a Canadian audience. Sure. But if you then go to Italy and you upload a video, that gets pushed to your Italian audience. So then your Canadian audience don't see it so much. So mm. I was moving constantly. And whilst I had an international audience, a quarter of them were the UK. So I, hey, look, I've already admitted, I think I got that content wrong at the time i think in hindsight it's taken on it's a life of its own it's become sure. this kind of cult thing and and the recap videos have done really well for it but in 2019 i didn't do it well enough and it's not what people wanted to see mm. people were happy still with the formula of buy car modify car drive car to monaco and twat around with other youtubers and, and yeah. there were plenty of other people doing that still in the uk so they were like oh yeah, Sam's off like filming some weird car in Malaysia. Like we don't care. We're going to skip that video, like whatever. And it wasn't getting pushed to them. So yeah, anyway, so long story short, I don't, I, I genuinely have no idea how many subscribers I has, have of today, sure. uh, of, of the state. I, it's not a motivating factor for me at all. My whole focus on any piece of content creation is engagement. So I, I live and breathe off, uh, of, off comments, off the comment section. Um, rather than views, subscriber growth, engage, you know, it's all off the comment section. Okay. So that sort of dovetails into one of my next questions about how you personally defined a successful video. There's definitely, a, there's definitely a number, uh, which, you know, I think realistically, if I'm at like 70,000 views, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm fine. I'm like that. That's good. I'm happy over hundred K. I'm like, great. Like these days that's, that's fine. Um, but even if a video, for example, I did a commercial video the other day um, and it got like 28K views, which I think is a pretty dead video. Like for me, I'm like, that's, that's kind of crappy. But engagement, like comment sections through the roof, right? So those that watched it are adoring it and loving it and saying this is the best piece of content ever. So <clears throat> then I know that I've got something wrong. So I've got the thumbnail wrong. I've got the title wrong. Or it's an algorithmic thing. So there's a lot of times when it's out of your hands. I I've noticed last year when f1 went absolutely insane in the world suddenly woke up to formula one right. if i upload a video now at the same time as a race i see a dip in views or right. i'll see in a dip of views when view so i now have to think about f1 upload schedules or f1 you know start times and things like that so all these things which i i can't always you know blame myself sometimes i have to go look it's just a a, a thing right but the day or the video that people are like 
Sam, this was crap, or this wasn't as good as your last video. I don't like the editing style. I've, these are boring. Then I have to take note. Uh, and you know, and, and that's my whole focus. That's why I'm like, look, I can't sit here and drill into the, into the analytics too much, because yes, there's a lot I can learn and there's mistakes I'm making, which I can read into. But as long as those that watch it like it, I know fundamentally what I'm doing is right. I just need to improve how I'm selling it. You know, it's all marketing on YouTube. Um, and it's no good having the best tasting chocolate bar in the world if no one's eating it. Right. But, but if you have the worst tasting chocolate bar in the world and you transfer it to a million people, they're never buying another one. So, you know, my focus is make sure the product is always fantastic and whoever watches it will love it. And then slowly work on getting more and more people to watch it, I suppose. So have you marketed the channel? Like specifically like campaigns? Not at all. No, okay. not at all. My, my marketing is, is title and thumbnail because yeah, yeah. that's how you live and breathe on YouTube. Um, you know, it, it's title and I'm very bad at it. I'm super, super bad at it because I'm too close to the product. If you know what I mean? To, to whore it out, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, and, and I need help again. We went going all the way back to the beginning of the chat delegation and, and growing, you know, I, I need that assistance and someone who really understands the, the SEO, the, the search engine optimization of YouTube to say, Here's how you can improve your thumbnails. Here's how you can improve your titles without, it doesn't have to be sensational. It doesn't have to mm -hmm. be clickbait. Right. But here's how you can attract people quicker because I've been making the same thumbnails for four years now and they clearly don't work, but I'm like, but the product's good. Like, you know, yeah. you just click, just click the video. You'll enjoy it. I promise. Um, yeah, totally. Matt talks about like the YouTuber face being in the video, yes. the, the thumbnail. Yeah. I find that it also works for Instagram. Absolutely. Like it, there's this trap where it's the cliche of like, oh, look at that. Like, I'm going to do a YouTuber pose. Why do YouTubers do it? It works. Right. You know? And I had this long chat with uh, Chris Harris, who, who's, uh, I guess, cult figure in terms of automotive YouTube, but also presents Top Gear here in the UK, one of the top, or if not the top car show in the world. And, uh, you know, he was coming at me being like, why do YouTubers always go, I might buy a McLaren? I just bought a Porsche. Who cares? I was like, why do we do it? Because that's what gets us views. Right. Like you, you, unfortunately, I think most of us would admit it's fairly grim and we don't always like it, but we're running businesses here and you have to listen to that. And you can't always be the artistic, uh, you know, uh, creative person who goes, Oh, I'm not going to follow the mainstream. I'm just going to create this really avant-garde content. Like we're running businesses. And so within reason, you've got to play the game. And, and yeah, I, I should be better at my thumbnails. I should work harder at them, but it's, as I say, as a business, it's where I, I drop the ball sometimes. Uh, but the YouTuber face is a prime example of people do it because it works. Yeah. It's so crazy. I struggle with it too, because as I've said on the podcast before, like I didn't name my brand Wesley Smith for a reason. You know what I mean? Like, it's not about me. You know, I want it to be about the product, right? Which is kind of gray area for you because you're, you're maybe 50% of the product, the car being the other 50% and the, the edit being the packaging, right? So um, it's really hard that because, you know, YouTube's a cruel place at the best of times, but why does one come to my channel? And there's a, a chunk of the audience that come because they enjoy seen through glass videos as a, mm -hmm. as a thing. But then there's also a whole lot of people that are just being fed that video because of the algorithm. And I can tell, I can pick, I can pick up on their comments. I can see when that's happening. So if you're just searching Lamborghini Huracan review, cause you're thinking mm -hmm. of buying one, 
mm-hmm. and mine comes up and you watch it, you might be like, why is this guy talking so much about coffee? Like, just get on with the review. <laughs> but obviously I'm there making those videos and having the lifestyle elements and talking about coffee because my core audience, I know appreciate it. And that's what I want to do. And that's what I want to talk about. So it's hard when you're doing informational videos, not like just like daily vlogs. Because daily vlogs, you don't end up on a daily vlog by mistake. You know what you're getting into when you buy. Right. But if mine says Ferrari FA Tributo review, and then I'm talking about empanadas and driving into the center of town and, you know, finally, this hotel's lovely. And then I've got like five minutes of the videos about the F8. Someone's going to be pissed off. Someone's right. not going to be happy because they came there for an F8 review. So right. it's, a, it's a hard one to win in that situation. Come for the car, stay for the coffee. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's what I hope. But sometimes they're like, just give me the car, stop drinking the coffee, bro. Yeah, that's so funny. What's something surprising behind the scenes that may go on that we just wouldn't know happens? in the filming process and or edit? That's a very good question. Um, I think I'm only going to go on what people tell me. Uh, People are firstly surprised that it's usually a one take. Most of the stuff I do is a one take. I've forced myself to do two takes so that I've got options in the edit, but most of my stuff is just a one take. No script, no scripting or anything like that. It's usually just turn the camera on and go. Yeah. And I think nowadays I'm a little bit more reserved off camera. So I think maybe people would say, people often say like, oh, I'm a mate. Like, oh, it's so natural. You just turn it on and you go. And I don't think about it as turning it on. Like, but I learned that if I stayed at the same level, you know, I'm 32 now. I started this when I was 25, 26. If I stayed at the same level of energy, because I'm a high level energy kind of guy, I was burning out, bro. Like I was burning out. If I was going to go and, meet some collector and film by the time I was on like my third clip, I was like, Oh, I'm losing energy. So I've had to bring down my personal energy levels a bit more so that I can give it maximum on camera. So maybe it seems like there's more of a shift in like, it's still me, but there's maybe more of like a step up to like, Hey guys, what's going on? I guess I don't feel it, but people say that to me a lot. That's really self-aware though. That's, that's fantastic that you had that awareness. It was my wife. I have to thank my wife for that. Cause she, cause she saw me just, just absolutely zapping in energy. Cause I, I, I guess through the PR days or how I was brought up, I, I'm like full attack from like moment one. I, I, I want to chat to people. I love meeting people. I'm excited. I'm, I'm energetic and I've always been that kind of person, but it was just not a good way to manage that. And then on, on camera, like, it, you know, as I say, like a, to manage myself, I was just, I was getting exhausted. And, and she was just saying, you've, you got to scale it back. You're there for work. You're not there to become someone's best friend. I want to be everyone's best friend. Like if I was meeting a collector, I'm like, let's go for dinner. <laughs> God, so many, so many parallels, man. Cause like as a retail guy, that was me. Like, yeah, and honestly, I can, I can, I can truly say that some of my best friends still to this day, I've met through retail. And, um, in fact, in four days time or three days time, when I released the next podcast, uh, it's with a guy named Brett King and I met him working retail like six years ago and he's a helmet designer actually. Um, oh, super cool. Way back when, uh, 2016 or something, he designed Esteban Gutierrez. Gutierrez. Uh, yeah. Yeah. For nice. the, the USGP, uh, in Austin. Um, great guy, but again, met him, got to become best friends and whatever, whatever. And Last week I was in Las Vegas and we went and played golf together and hung out and ate dinner and like, yeah, it's just fantastic. But, um, 
Yeah, so yeah, yet again, more parallels. More, more parallels. No, no, but this, this is how so we've ended up in this situation. But I think, right. you know, but, but that's exactly it, you know. And Schmidt, uh, so another, he, he, we've mentioned him a couple of times in this podcast, you know, sure. one of the biggest guys in my space of supercar vlogging. He is fantastic, if not sometimes too brutal in this, where, you know, go to a car show, like go to Cars and Coffee at the weekend. If he's making a video, he that's his focus. He is there to make a video. So if someone comes up to him and says, Tim, hi, or Shmi, hi, can I get a photo? He's like, no, I'm sorry, I'm filming a video. I'll be, I'll come back at the end, or you come find me at the end when I'm finished. I'm like, hey, yeah, no problem. Like, what's your favorite car at the show? Where are you based? What do you drive, man? No way. Like, I'm there for like 15 minutes. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, crap, i got to film something. So right. he, again, helped me realize that, you know, in a lot of these situations, you're there for a job. And, a job and people to struggle, yeah. to, struggle to understand that, you know, especially if it's someone who's a viewer and they've invited you to come and film their car or something like that. Yeah. You know, their, their expectation as well is to hang out and chat and get to meet you. So it's finding that click out of being who I want to be and, and staying true to myself, but then also executing a job and, and keeping sure that I'm, I'm, I'm maximizing the workflow. So I, I say, I, I have to thank my wife for that uh, mainly. Uh, and then also a little bit of Shmi. <laughs> Did you know Tim prior to starting your channel? Uh, I knew of him, of course, but no, I didn't know him. Uh, weirdly, we, we worked out later on. I actually worked with his uh, ex-girlfriend for, for a period of time. She was an intern at the agency where I was at. So that was a weird coincidence. But, but no, I, I, didn't know, I didn't know any of the, the YouTube gang before I started. Um, I, I met them all, all once I'd already created the channel. Cool. What do, what do your parents do? Uh, my dad is a, is a jeweler. So as in jewelry. Yeah. So he, he absolutely is the boss of that. I, I only found out when I was like 21 or 22 that he's like the world's leading expert on vintage Cartier. I was like, ha, that's not my dad, but no, he like crushes it. So like, if, if you're like, oh, there was this clock in like 1914, he's like, oh yeah, it's here. And this is how much it costs. And this is how many they made. He's a, yeah. Anyway, so he kills it. <laughs> you're giving me a real shocked and surprised face now. That's crazy. I just bought my first Cartier watch. No way. Was it, is it a tank or a, or a more modern thing? Tank Louis. Oh my God. Well, he'll be all over this. So he went through a whole stage the last two or three years. He's been dominating the tank market. He's been buying and selling everything. He's had a few crashes come through. Like, like that's, yeah, that's his whole vibe. I think I, maybe I don't want to say too much, but I feel like he's now stepping back on the tanks, but he's really been crushing the tank game. Wow. That's insane. Wait, what's your dad's name? Uh, his name's Harry. I'll send you his surname. I don't post my surname that much every, every now yeah. and again, more, yeah, yeah. more for his privacy than mine. But, uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, he, he, he does an amazing, amazing job of it. Not, not a world I've ever been interested in. I did three summers of internship with him. Not only is he a complete Nazi when it comes to how he runs his office, <laughs> I was just like, not my world. I have zero, uh, interest or passion at this at, at 17 years old. Uh, and my mom's a therapist. My mom's a psychotherapist. Uh, but she's the petrolhead in the family. All of my love of cars and everything came from my mom. My dad couldn't care less. It's uh, it's all from my mom. She's had cool cars. She was into Formula One and motorsport. She she definitely bred the the petrolhead in me. Now, are they both originally from the UK? Yeah, both British. They've been together for <clears throat> I, I, I'm embarrassed to forget for how long, but a, a whole chunk of time. And I have a sister two years older. Again, couldn't care less about cars. She's a teacher. So. You know, there's nothing that should have launched me into this way of life. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're incredible parents and fantastic at what they do, but not necessarily within the creative industry or within automotive or anything. Right. So 
but incredibly supportive. So, you know, throughout my life, I've just backed anything. And, you know, I think my dad knows I credit the start of the channel to him, but maybe he doesn't. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I do. So, yeah, without his support and his advice, I, I wouldn't have started the YouTube channel in the first place. So what are some of your earlier car memories then if your mom drove like cool stuff? A4 Cabriolet, what a beast. Always dark nice. blue. And uh, in, the, in the back roads of the UK, uh, out in the, so what we call the countryside, so you know, outside the city, uh, I used to always sit on her lap and she would do the pedals and I'd do the steering wheel. And, and, you know, and, and we did that fully on like totally legal roads when I was like nine or 10 years old. That's great. She was very, very encouraging of that. So I remember that a lot. My, my dad used to always smoke around in like Range Rovers or C-Class Estates or whatever, like just anything that was comfortable that would get him from A to B. Um, but yeah, so, so that was definitely the start of the passion. And my mom would always tell stories of, you know, she used to be obsessed with 911s, which I didn't get for a long time, which was kind of funny, but she'd driven some friend of hers, 911 from London to Geneva or something like that, and was always talking about it. She used to have MG sports cars when she was younger and stuff. She was very cool, you know, she was a DJ yeah. in Italy for a while and like, yeah, yeah, so my mom was very cool. Um, and they're both kind of old hippies, so they've, they've lived a life, my parents. Um, but yeah, that's some of my earliest comments for sure with the, with the A4, the boxy shaped A4 Cabriolet. Yeah. And driving that at far too young an age. What was your first car personally? Uh, Volkswagen Golf, Mark IV Volkswagen Golf, little 1.4 liter. Oh, let's go. It was the dream, man. Absolute dream. When I, you know, I was 17 and that was, uh, you know, that was goals. I had a few friends who had a few other bits and bobs, but for me, it was, that was the only option. And uh, I, I adored that car. Adored it, man. Do you have any specific memory of driving that Mark IV? Oh, a thousand. I mean, literally, I think, you know, I, the minute I got my license, I was just out and about in it everywhere. I drew, me and my friend drove straight up to Scotland about two weeks after I got my license. So that's a sort of, maybe it's a 500 mile trip, probably yeah. pushing it. It's probably more 400 mile trip. We went to see this really crappy boy band that he was obsessed with. Like it's like poppy boy band. I was like, yeah, sure. I'll come. Cause I just want, I wanted to drive. Like, drive. I was like, yeah, yeah. I was, I was just, no worries. Um, so did that. I camped in it one night, went to some friends parties. I was like, I'll just come and sleep in the back of that. So we put the seats down and slept in the back of it. Um, I remember I bought some awful aftermarket rims that cost me like 50 quid. And, uh, and I was going down some back lane, hit a pothole and cracked the entire rim. Cause they were so cheap and like, Oh mate, that, that car was my whole thing, you know? And I was still at school. So I was, I was at boarding school, but I was driving it to and from school and I'd, I'd leave it in the kind of under a bush in, in one of the school play areas, like things like that. Cause I was like, Oh, I'd be fine. You weren't allowed to keep your car at school, but I just left it under a bush and thought, and then walked up the hill to the school. And uh, it would stay there safely enough so that at the end of the, the boarding period, I could go down and just drive home. So, Oh, that's amazing. How many cars have you owned? Ooh, quite a few, because I think like people often slam me on YouTube. Well, it's a very common thing to do. But like, oh, YouTube has changed that car so much. But I did, I did long before YouTube. I, I, so I had the, it's easier if I just run through them. You can, sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Mark IV, the Mark IV Golf. BMW 330i Saloon, uh, a, uh, Audi S3 Gen oh. 1, uh, Audi A6, the 4.2 V8, Audi TTS, uh, Alfa Romeo 4C, Jaguar F-Type, McLaren 540C, Abarth 695 Biposto, uh, Porsche Cayman 718S, Ferrari 360, uh, Porsche 911 Carrera T, Volvo 1999 Volvo V70. Love it. Uh, ah, 
at now people are going to start yelling at me saying you've forgotten so much uh, 996 40th anniversary Porsche 911 another Abarth 595 um, and a little Citroen C4 WRC replica rally car which was super cool BMW X3 uh, Jaguar F-Type have I said that? I must have said that Jaguar F-Type you said yeah we're like what? we're like 15, 15. But, you know, prior to YouTube, I was just one of those, I changed my car every six months because I just wanted to try things. Like, you know, try, like, I, all my friends mock me for, like, king of depreciation because I just wanted to try stuff. So I just, like, I'd get bored and I'd just go and buy something else. And, and you know, it was, it was fairly ridiculous, but that was just it. And then when YouTube happened, I was in the same pattern. I was just able to get in and out of more things. That's what it right. was. Oh, man, that's amazing. So How about walk- yourself? Do you, have, you, have you ever kept count? Oh my God, dude. I have not had too many cars and I'm on my fourth Volkswagen. So, okay. Yeah. So uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a VW Audi, you know, Porsche fan. So I, I sold Audis and Porsches for a blip on the radar like 15 years ago. And I guess that's when I got my first one. I had a Mark IV, uh, Jetta actually. And then I traded that in on a GLI and that's what I drove cross country with to move to California. And then I got my first GTI, which was a Mark six. And then I got my Mark seven. And with my Mark seven, that's when I started to play with it. You know, chip the engine, AWE exhaust, uh, lowered wheels, tires, swapped out for European LED taillights. You know, you know, I basically made the car look how I wanted it to look from the factory. And, and people stop me all the time and ask me what trim level it is. I'm like, yeah. it's the standard H trim. There we go. There we go. Brand everything. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think my wife and I, so my brother-in-law actually works for Rivian. And, oh, wow. Um, so we're looking at getting a Rivian SUV. Um, so that, that might come into the garage. Uh, my wife drives a Mazda MX-3. Uh, or Mazda 3 or whatever. She's not a car person at all. Okay, fine, um, fair enough. And so, yeah, I mean, my dream car is a 911, you know? Well, actually, my dream car is a Ferrari, right? Like, I'm a Ferrari guy first. I'm a Porsche guy through and through, though, you know? So, which is what I wanted to ask you about is kind of the genesis of the 360. Like, why that model? Where'd you find it? How'd that all come about? Because, I mean, it's still... And as you've gone through your restoration, which has been amazing to see for its 20th birthday, the car just looks so good, man. It's better and better, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah I, just, I literally just picked it up just now from the garage ahead of next week's big trip. And I was like, oh, it looks so good. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, like you, I mean, Ferrari, my Ferrari session began with Schumacher, Michael Schumacher, Same. famous Formula One racing driver. So, yeah, that was where it all started. That was the love of the brand. Uh, and that funneled into road cars later on, uh, you know, for forever. It was just the, the team. But then obviously like early 2000s, I was like, oh, they make road cars too. Um, (laughs) And uh, so I don't think I necessarily at that time went, I want that model. I spoke about it recently on another podcast. I actually think the first Ferrari road car I really obsessed over was what I always thought was a 575, but actually was a 550 Marinello featured in a a Nicolas Cage movie uh, called The Family Man or The Family Guys like that. And he's like this cool bachelor living in the city and he rocks up in this badass Ferrari. And I, that, I definitely remember going like, I need one of those in my life at some point. Um, but then life took me down this different path and I never, I was like, okay, Ferrari by 30 would be 
a nice thing to sort of say, but it wasn't like I was sitting there like an affirmation, like every day of my life, I must get a Ferrari by 30. It was just like, no, yeah, cool. Like, that would be nice. Um, and then when I started getting into this YouTube game, they were kind of there or thereabouts, but I wasn't really sure like which route to go. Like 458 was kind of cool, but again, like they seemed a bit too far away, um, especially on the modern stuff. And I literally did no word of a lie. I had a dream because the 360 Challenge for Dali has been my dream car for a very long time, even though I fell in love with the 550-575 first. Sure. I guess the Challenge for Dali obsession came not long after that. So, you know, like 2004, that car came out. So it was around that time that I posted the car. So when the channel started, some of my earliest videos are obsessing over Challenge for Dali's. And I had this dream that I'd bought a manual challenge to Dali and the internet went mad. And I was like, it's the best thing in the world. And I woke up and I went, <gasps> and then obviously reminded myself, okay, they didn't make a manual challenge to Dali. So like, what's that all about? And I thought, but they of course made a manual 360. So I thought, I wonder like there must, I want to find the craziest spec from factory 360 out there. I want as many challenge parts on it as possible. I wonder if I can get the bucket seats. Like I was going to go in. And I put a tweet out saying, oh, I dreamt that I bought a 360 manually. And this kid tweets me back saying, oh, my dad has a workshop and actually they've got a 360 for sale at the moment. Here's the link. I click the link. Dude, it's the car from my dream. Like red, tan interior, challenge grill, challenge seats, roll cage, fire extinguisher. I'm like, <gasps> so it's like 9.30 at night the next day. And I'm like calling this garage, like leaving voicemails. Like, Hello, my name is Sam. I need that car. Don't sell it. Don't sell it. Don't sell it. Literally. And the guy wanted all the money in the world for it. And I was like, oh no. So uh, it took us a while to get there, but we eventually finally settled on a, on a deal. And that was four years ago. And the car has turned out to be better than I could ever have hoped. It's a, it's a prime era, I think, of road cars or supercars or sports cars, but also of Ferrari. It's right towards, I think, sort of the end of their peak of Schumacher era, De Montezemolo era. You know, just a lot of different reasons. Um, it just smells of Italy every time you get in it, the, the leathers and the glues that they used. Um, but the perfect road performance. And I was so lucky that the, the people who were selling it uh, were and are the leading experts in 360s globally. I'm going to come out and say it globally. Wow. Definitely in Europe, but, but globally. And the guy, he's called Aldous, uh, who runs the, the workshop AV Engineering, is so... OCD and uh, like just obsessive compulsive about like <clears throat> working on 360s that that car has been looked after, fettled with, like worked on like no other car. And so I will happily come out and fight anyone that says they've got a better 360 Moderna in the world. I think it's perfect. And uh, you mechanically setup wise, it's got the Challenge Dial exhaust. It runs Challenge ECU. It's all factory. I haven't put anything non-factory on there uh, except the brake pads. Sorry. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's an absolute dream boat. And yeah, this year turns 20 years old. So I thought celebrate that by putting as many miles on it as possible. <laughs> oh man, that's, it's incredible. And congratulations, frankly. Like, I mean, it's Thank just you, amazing. Um, is there the perfect starter Ferrari these days? Like what would be a good one to start with today? Well, the thing is like the 360 remains one of the most affordable, right? Like still, th this is the thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, they all Ferraris, go up and go down the 360 has remained one of the most uh, accessible ones that you can go and do for mid-engine you're if you want to go front engine or, or 12 cylinder you're looking at four five six but i'll warn you off those because that can be a disaster great thing about 360 is within reason they're probably only going to cost you a couple of grand a year to run like and i say a couple of grand like 
that's a lot of money, but you can definitely face horror stories. But the other caution I will put out there is that any affordable, in, in inverted commas, Ferrari, means that at some point, Billy Bob uh, in Texas has bought one and thought, I can do this myself. Like, I'll just fix it up on the on the driveway here. Like, I don't need a mechanic. And has missed things or has just, like, bought some cheap parts from the auto shop. And, like, so you have to be really wary because when those cars go wrong, it's a disaster. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Not only expense, but just time and energy. Like, so, for example, there's a car floating around on the market here that everyone keeps tagging me in because they know I like green cars. And it's a green 360 I don't think the person's going to be listening to this, so I don't mind. Uh, it's been on the market ever since I bought my car, four years, but it's just changed to a new dealer who's relisted it, hence why everyone's like, oh my God, what is this car? Now look, maybe this new dealer's fixed it, I don't know. But famously, that car's gearbox was flooded with coolant liquid. Like this was the whole thing. That's why no one ever bought it because the guy's coolant kept draining out and he just kept topping it up. He never thought, oh, I wonder where this coolant fluid's going. <laughs> it was draining into his gearbox. He never thought that. He just thought, oh, I'll just top it up, it's low. So disaster, like, and that's, you know, that's a whole new gearbox. That's multiple tens of thousands in a car that's maybe 60,000. You know, so you have to be really careful, but I think the 360 is a fantastic sweet spot. Yeah. All I would say is if you want to just go a little bit more modern, the 430 with an F1 box, a coupe, well-specced with the bucket seats and everything, that is a great car that yeah. I think is a little overlooked at the moment in the UK. That's probably an 80, 90,000 pound car. I think that's a steal. I, right. I do think that's a steal because it's just a, a 360 is a sports car. 430 is definitely a supercar. And the last of the F1 boxes was good. The, sh the shift is good. It's still of an era, but it's good. They're okay to run. Like, that's a good car. Um, so a quick question, because I've only heard, you know, secondhand or whatever, that the 458 was kind of the beginning of the reliability change in Ferrari. What were those changes? Like, why is a 458 forward more reliable, quote, than, say, your 360, historically speaking? It's a little bit of PR and marketing spin, because uh, yeah. it was with the 458 that they introduced the service pack and the service plan. So, of course, if you bought a 458, new or after. used, yeah. you got looked after. And yeah. so in your head, you're like, ah, oh, it's like so cheap to run a 458. Nothing goes wrong. Like, it's great. Like, I just, I get my service and everything comes back and it's great. So there's a little bit of an illusion there. Uh -huh. So if you're buying a 2010 458 right now, you're not getting a free, like, that's not like, oh, they never go wrong. Like, firstly, a lot of them went up in flames to begin with. Yeah. Um, but, but secondly, like, You've got to be a bit wary. Yes, they took a big step forward, like all these brands and manufacturers, as electronic systems came in the car. The big thing you get with the 458 is it tells you when something's going wrong. Mm. With the 360, you only find out when it goes wrong or you hear it going wrong. So right. prime example for you, for the last month or so, there's been this very quiet oscillating noise when I drive the car at speed. It's like, like this. And I thought, okay, it sounds like either something's flapping at the back or maybe something's come loose because it's had a lot of work done on it the car recently, so I thought something's knocking. And on the last trip, it's been getting louder and louder to the point where it's like, doo -doo 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 -doo. Uh, so I said to the guys, like, that needs to be checked out, that's something weird. No errors anywhere, the car's performing fantastic, like, I'm flat out in Tenerife, like, but just this weird noise. And uh, turns out it was a wheel bearing that had just absolutely destroyed itself. Now, what would have happened, long story short, at some point it would have eaten itself, probably the rear wheel would have just fallen off at speed and I'd be going down the highway and the wheel would have just popped off and 
disaster. Right. Now, on a modern car, you're going to get a warning for that straight away because everything's got sensors. So that's where you get the benefit with the modern cars is it says, beep, fault, return to dealer. Right. So whenever you're buying a modern classic, that's what I always say to people, like, be prepared for the unexpected. That's mm -hmm. what's going to bite you on an older car is you think, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to have to do the clutch at some point, maybe the brakes, brake lines, whatever. Everything else will be fine. No, because... <laughs> everything else is going wrong and you just don't know yeah yeah, yeah so yeah. there's you're just not cognizant yeah yeah exactly well on the modern cars like if anything's got like it tells you you get an engine like it tells you straight away quickly go back to the so that you know that's the difference um so 458s inherently are probably easier to maintain but i wouldn't necessarily say they're any less expensive right right what's your favorite modern ferrari and i define modern say the last 10 years mm, i'm hard pushed between F12 TDF and Pista. I'm like between those two because both of them want to kill you. Like any second, like both of them want to kill you. And for me, that's what special Ferrari should do. So, so I've ridden in the passenger seat of an F12 and just getting in the on-ramp to the highway. Yep. That car feels like it just wants to go faster. Like there's no end. Like it doesn't matter how fast you're going. It wants to go faster. And first of all so to your point the tdf i think is the most gorgeous piece of sculpture and then knowing that the guts inside want to just keep going faster and faster like that that would be my vote so it's interesting to hear you say that the thing with the tdf is is it wants you to go faster but then it's like but i don't like you so i'm gonna <laughs> kill you like do you know what I mean? like, like so you're there being like if you can get away in first gear without putting it in a tree, you're already doing well. So the car's like, oh, well done. And then you're like, okay, now I'm in second gear, pull to third and it goes, hello. And dude, you're wheel spinning on that pull to third, even into fourth on a cold day, dude. Like, so in a straight line, it's like, you're stupid. And then you get to a corner and it's got this dodgy rear wheel steer, which they hadn't quite calibrated correctly. So you're like at the apex, and the car's like, I want more Apex! And like, just turns you in again. And you're like, oh, sh like the whole thing is such a, an experience and so exhilarating. You come out five kilos lighter. Like it's that Sweating. much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's that much. And, and so therefore I adore it. And the Pista is like a different kind of level where it's like, oh yeah, we're going to go racing. But you think, okay, I can drive this car. And then it just goes, no, dead. Like the right. TDF is a bit more predictable in the terms of like, it just will wheel spin. And then at the apex, it's a bit scary. The piece is just like, it will just snap whenever it wants. Like the, just Google or go on Instagram, type piece to crash. Oh my God. Oversteer. Not just oversteer, dude. Like it just snaps. The way that the car actually pivots on itself is what's scary. Wow. When the tires aren't at temperature or just with the balance, you cannot save that car once it's gone. You know, most Ferraris or, or any progressive kind of oversteer, you can sense it or you can see it coming. You know, when you've overcooked it, you can still kind of save it a bit sometimes. Mm. The Pista is like at a roundabout. No, no, I'm going to die. Like it's just made. I mean, but that's cool. That's cool. Because you always know that. So you're always a little bit apprehensive. Well, that was the Carrera GT, right? Exactly. Yeah. Which forever, by the way, and maybe we can discuss this briefly, was like, no one wanted a Carrera GT because everyone died in it, like RIP Paul Walker, but like yeah. everyone just died. And so forever, I was like, oh no. And then suddenly people went, 
oh no, but I want one. <laughs> and so like, let's just make them really valuable. So I don't know where people forgot the fact that they're super tricky to drive and yeah. quite sketchy and but made them investment grade because yeah, forever they were just terrifying. Well, you're several months into owning an RS6, which, uh, you know, the Avant, which frankly is one of my grail cars as well. Actually, I, an RS4 Avant is like tip top for me. And sadly, Audi hates the United States and doesn't release them here. Um, and yours, you mentioned you're a green fan. Your spec is incredible. Like the green over tan. I mean, shit, there's a, there's a freaking Instagram dedicated to the car, the, the, the color combo, um, which is, which is brilliant. You've, we've chatted briefly before about, you know, it being quite large to be in central London where you are. How has ownership gotten on with you and, and, are, are you planning an early exit as you have with other cars in the past or what are we thinking? Yeah, it, it's been a, an eye-opening experience. Um, it's a tough car to live with, dude. It, yeah. it is in, in a city center. It's also an unrealistic car to use as a daily. You've mm. got to be so rich. You've got to be so rich to run that as a daily. You know, I'm, I'm averaging like single figure MPG in town, which is like not a thing. I can't fit through any of the width restrictions, which we have a lot of in London. Parking the thing is a nightmare. My wife hates driving it. And actually at slow speeds, it's a complete computer. Like there's no rewarding sensation at slow speeds because you get this really synthetic noise. Everything feels a bit dead. Steering feels dead, pedal feels dead. Oh. So you're like, what is this? The only time it's great is on the big journeys. You know, we, mm. did, we did London to Scotland. We went for a weekend and I was like, this is cool. This is super cool. But then when you get up to Scotland, you're on a twisty road. Like you're like, oh my God, like it's big and heavy. Mm. So, Really, it's a car to have if you've got lots of other cars. You don't care about depreciation. You don't care about fueling. It's got style. It's got stance. But actually, it's it's a tough car to live with daily. And and I've spoken about it quite a bit on my podcast. Uh, uh, I've got a few other things coming now, which I wasn't expecting. This year's changed a lot beyond what I was expecting. Does the RS6 still fit in my life? No. Probably not. So, you know... Was it a mistake? Maybe, maybe. Um, but I'm glad I've had this experience mm -hmm. and uh, it was one that I wanted to do and put your money where your mouth is, right? Like I, you know, I, I, I thought, heck, I gotta go and buy it and see what it's like and it hasn't worked out, but it is what it is now I know and, and we move on. Well, I know you've driven the RS3. Have you driven the RS4? Uh, yes, driven, not the very, very, very latest generation, but driven the RS4. I think the problem with all modern RS Audis is they're just a bit dead. They're just a bit dead in terms of character and personality. And, you know, Audi have always been sort of top of their engineering. And it's, they're not always famously silly or fun cars. But nowadays, they're just a little bit too programmed, you know, even the Merc's going that way. And, and that means you're left with a cabin that's beautiful, but maybe a little bit dated in a car that looks great. But, you know, I think RS4 is, is almost becoming cooler than RS6. I'd give you that. But at the same time, I wanted to try the big daddy and, and see yeah. what it was all about. Yeah. Right. Right. That's interesting. I mean, your trips have been epic to say the least. Um, has there ever been a place that you've gone where you were just like highly considering moving there? Oh yes. Um, I've already mentioned Monaco. Uh, me and my wife have looked at apartments there probably every year and never quite pulled the plug. Really? Yeah. That's been a genuine consideration quite a few times and, and LA. I don't think I would now, but, but prior to YouTube and definitely the first few years of YouTube, 
Um, that that was a serious consideration. Um, I, I do love that place. I I, I say I, my my life's changed slightly now. I don't think I would. Um, but those two have had some serious thought um, for sure. What uh, what's changed? Because that's the second time you brought it up. Uh, you know, well, I'm married. Yeah, I feel more stable in myself and my life and what I want and what I'm chasing. Sure. Moving somewhere like LA is a, is a is a big change. My whole family are here. Uh, my wife's family are, are in Europe. So like you, you're moving very far away on a totally different time zone. Yeah. Uh, and for what? What you know? For 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 what? Uh, five years ago, it was for a job and career and a lifestyle change. I I don't really feel like I need that or want that right now. Right. Sure. You're recently in Tenerife for at least your second time, which yes, the, the photos are just like insane. Like it's just like stunning. Well, and it's huge in the in the cyclist community for training grounds. I know. What, well, you had like a encounter with a pro Absolutely. Cyclist. Yeah. So I didn't realize it's where they all go to train for the Tour de France and all these different big things. So I had no idea. So I'm on the side of the road and these cyclists come past and go, see the glass. And I was like, oh, hey, man. And then driving off the road and I go past them. And then later that evening, I get a bing on Instagram and he's uploaded the videos. And he's like, verified. There you go. Blue tick. Bring it back to the blue right, tick. I'm like, right. oh, who is this guy's verified? And turns out he's like a proper legit, the Esteban Ocon of cycling, like has won legit tour stages and like everyone <clears> knows who he is and people are like, oh my God, no way. I'm like, oh, hey man. <laughs> so yeah, I had no idea. So he just randomly filmed you because I saw the clip. Oh, he totally randomly filmed me, posts it on Instagram and tags me and I immediately start chatting to him and be like, oh dude, like no way, like thanks so much. And I, and I said, oh, could you send me the clip? I'd love to post it, it's such a cool clip. And he was like, yeah, no, of course i love the channel like this is amazing i've been watching since the f type like super nice guy lives in monaco and watches yeah. the channel apparently knew who i was so pure random coincidence but uh yeah it's where they all go to train because the roads there and the uh, the main thing is their altitude so they get right. to really train at altitude right. which is good for them um and there i was trying to run them all down in my ferrari <laughs> right <laughs> well you mentioned your podcast so i kind of wanted to, to promote that a little bit um how did that come about you've been doing it for years and it seems like you changed the format, right? Like you used to have guests. You know? Yeah, for sure. It, it, it's definitely gone through evolutions. I started a long time ago. I'm trying to think which podcast I've, uh, I don't know what inspired me. I think I was listening to a lot of uh, Dak Shepard who does Armchair Experts, which are yeah. celebrity interviews. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I just kind of like, oh, let's get into the podcast space. When, when no one was doing it, this was literally 2017 or 20 maybe 2018 2017 or 2018 and yeah it was all interview based just me myself interviewing people uh but i had a guy who i was working with a lot at the time uh who i already mentioned this podcast uh, he's called tony runs or owns a, a used car dealership uh, in the uk and we were day in day out just chatting about cars long phone conversations whenever we met up whatever and i think either he came on an episode or we did an episode together and it flew and I just said to him, like, dude, let's do the podcast together. Like, I, th I think it will do really well. And we're having these conversations anyway. And that was, okay, so hold on a second. I must have started the podcast in 2017. I think it was 2017, yeah. Yeah, I think I started the podcast in 2017. 2018, I did, I did half a season with Tony. We went on the world trip, so it had to stop. And then when we came back and went into lockdown, me and Tony said, let's go, let's go full on hard with the podcast. So that was 2020. And for the last two years, we've done an episode every single week. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. It's so consistent. Um, I'm a one man band, as you know. So it's yeah, like, yeah. I, I, you know, going into lockdown, I had like eight episodes in the hopper, so to speak. 
So I was doing weekly and then I was like, well, shit, like, I don't know how I'm going to be like locked in my house for the next, I don't know how long. Right. For sure. And I was like, well, eight episodes, you know what? Like I just launched this within the last year. You know, my audience isn't huge at the time. So it was kind of a function of, well, only a few hundred, you know, 500 people are going to be like depressed, right? That I'm, I'm not, I'm not posting every week. So it was one of those things where it's like, well, if I space these out to every other week, that'll get me through four months of lockdown. And then of course I learned about Zoom and the rest is history. But because the every other week thing was just so much better for my schedule as a one man band who edits all this and does it all. Like I just, I just, I just stuck with every other week, but are you guys, do you guys edit yours? Uh, so we, we have now got an editor, thank God. Oh, so, so yeah. uh, to be fair, the audio is a one take. So we don't chop anything. We, we right. want to take the audio, but, but, but because we upload on YouTube as well, there's a video element that needs to be edited. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so about, I think it's the start of the year. We hired a kid called Ben, who's great. Uh, he does all the video stuff for us. Um, and he's coming, we're doing some live shows this year. He comes down and films the live shows and things like that. So yeah, uh, yeah it, that, that's helped a lot. I post these on YouTube, but just with a static image um, sure. and, and off we go. But um, I want to ask you about watches real quick. Sure. So what, what role have watches played in your life? I mean, obviously you're a Speedmaster fan. Yeah. But you mentioned your dad's like Mr. Cartier. So like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there we go. It trickles from my dad. We kind of touched, touched on that briefly already, but, but you know, I think, uh, because he's already, he's always had nice watches. I've always been aware of them, like him wearing them. I don't think I necessarily was like a watch guy as like a kid, yeah. but I've always been aware of him wearing nice watches. And, and we have a weird link with Bali in Indonesia because I, I already mentioned my parents are old hippies. So, uh, you know, they've been going there since the since the 70s um, wow. uh, and, and have property there. So we've always gone every, every year. And there is and was, I think even was an amazing fake watch market or, or, or seen in Bali. And maybe I shouldn't promote that, but when I'm 15 and I'm going in and these were like amazing fakes and I've seen all these watches my dad wears and suddenly they're here for like 40 quid. I'm like, yep. So dude, I went in, like I had a collection of like 25 Rolex Cartier edition, like tag Heuer special limit. Like the, it was an insane scene. And, and not only were they that good, like, he had a client who, at the men, I remember at the time, had an all black, I guess they did a Submariner or Rolex. Something was all black. And my, my dad found the fake, bought the fake. And they were like in a lunch meeting. And the guy had a real one and my dad had a fake one. And he went, oh, we've got the same watch. And they had them like next to each other. And the guy never realized my dad was a fake. That's how good they were. Wow. So that's where my, that's where my love came from. Because I suddenly had like super legit watches. Okay, they were all fake. And I'm sure Watch Anish or any pro would have gone like fake, fake, fake. But at, at a teenager age, I was like the dream. And then I, I think it was my 20, it was definitely my 21st. My dad said, okay, enough of the fakes. And he gave me the Speedmaster, which I'm wearing today. So it's a 1996 Speedmaster. Oh, oh brilliant. And he was like, enough of the fakes. Here you go. This, this will get you on your way. And you know, it, what I loved about Speedmaster and what I appreciated about it and still to this day is I think it's the accessible Rolex, right? I, like, I, I, I think... You can still pick up a Speedmaster for a couple of grand, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, if I, fine, knew they're a lot of money, but you can pick up a used Speedmaster for fifteen hundred quid, a couple of grand. It is uh, appreciated enough by watch people to go like, "Cool, man, Speedmaster." 
Yeah. You can tie it up with a funny strap. It looks mega. They haven't changed the design much. It's a bit like a 911. Actually, you know what? I'm going to say that's exactly what it's like. It's like the 911 of the watch world. I couldn't agree more. And, and so I immediately was like, this is my vibe. And then what, what I got obsessed with, just like with Porsche, is all the iterations. So the minute I had that one Speedmaster, I was like, oh my God, there are so many. So I've then forever become obsessed with every single edition, you know, uh, Tokyo Olympics, uh, moon watches, uh, Apollo editions. Like that's been my whole like, <laughs> um, to, to this day, my actual real watch collection is, is relatively small. I have this Speedmaster I picked up this year, a Schumacher edition, same year, 1996, um, but it's the reduced. I have a Tag Heuer Carrera from some work I did with Tag Heuer, and I literally just picked up um, a Cassioke. So the uh, yeah, yeah, which is which are awesome, which is the the G Shocks. Yeah, they just released a new version of. So that that's my full watch real collection, really. Oh man, that's amazing. So I I think we should talk about Mila Miglia. Yes, I think that's that's probably where we need to where we need to get on to. Yeah, well, let's chat about that real quick, and then we'll wrap things up. So yeah, and I mean. I'm assuming most people would have heard of Mila Miglia at some point. So this is the world's most iconic and famous road rally. Uh, it took place, I always like to say the 1950s, but I actually need to check that before I start filming videos next week. Um, uh, and was famously run, won by Sterling Moss, one of the most iconic racing drivers of all time, in a record time of 10 hours and 10 minutes, I think, or 10 hours and seven, anyway basically averaging 100 miles an hour across this thousand miles and this isn't like a thousand miles around a race circuit this is a road rally and it's literally through people's towns and bedrooms and cities and whatever it might be in if you google some of the imagery from that era it's unbelievable some of the yeah. most beautiful racing cars you've ever seen flat out averaging i mean averaging averaging 100 miles an hour um and he did it in a mercedes slr uh, the coupe version of which just sold as the most valuable car in the world so you know, iconic, 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 iconic. And since I think the 1980s, they've run this like, um, what would you call it? Uh, it's almost like a tribute. Tribute, there you go. Tri a tribute version where they do the same route um, with, and the cars that can take part in the main Mille from a certain era, I think it's like 1930 to 1957 or something like that. And that runs and it's historic and there's competition classes and it's, it's regarded as one of the most prestigious historic rallies that take place around the world. And since a certain period, Ferrari have done something called the Ferrari Tribute, which runs just ahead of the classic mm -hmm. cars. It's like mm -hmm. the warm-up event at a concert. Um, and I followed the event in 2018. Um, some guys taking part allowed me to be their support crew in an Alfa Giulia. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like madness. Yeah. Italian insanity, you know, like you've got the police on your side, like because they want to get you through these places as quickly as possible so they can open it back up to, to the public. They want you to speed. So, and also a lot of the classics, the actual classics, they can't stop. So like, you know, if they stop, they break down. So there's all these police like rushing. So you're driving through tiny Italian towns at hundred miles an hour. Like it's Mental, mate. And people coming out of their houses and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like people are just lining the streets. There's there's parties, there's there's people eating, there's people drinking, they're all cheering. So Italy just has a party for for three days. And long story short, I have signed up this year to do it in my Ferrari 360 as part of the celebration of it turning 20 years old. 
Uh, I'm doing the Mila Melia, and with huge thanks to, of course, Standard H, who are not only going to be kidding me out, um, but supporting me take part because it, it's one of the most extortionately expensive events I've ever done in my entire life. But you know, we got we got production crew, we've got uh, endless things that are going into it to try and make it as special as possible. And so, yeah, this is how we got in touch and started chatting, and, yeah. and I'm so grateful to have your support and, and super excited. It it all kicks off in a few days' time. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't be more thankful for the inclusion as well. So thank you. Um, super excited. Big fan of the event. Targa Florio as well. Of course. Um, which here's a little Easter egg for anybody who cares about the apparel side of Standard H. But I'm developing my first outerwear piece as we speak. And it's called the Targa Florio jacket. Hey. And so I can't wait to share that with you um, and all of you guys too. But um Sam, I can't thank you enough, man. We've we've actually run longer than I even anticipated. So, uh, which is a positive problem, you know. Having too much content is always better than not enough. Sam, thank you, dude. Thank you so much. It's been great catching up. We'll we'll speak soon. Don't worry, yeah. buddy. Awesome, dude. Okay, buddy. Have a good Bye. one. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, Wesley here. If you liked what you heard, maybe tell a friend about the Standard Age podcast. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover this podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as the clear audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.